Butler here. We're going to continue study on the disciplines tonight. And uh, we've got one, this one and one more. So we'll all be gurus and professionals in regards to the disciplines by the end of next week, I'm sure. Um, uh, but now tonight we're going to talk about the guidance, uh, the discipline of guidance. And then uh, next week we'll talk about the discipline of celebration. Key, can you work on the discipline of shutting the door? Thank you. So let's pray and we'll get to it. Lord, we thank you for this time tonight. I'm thankful to get to worship you in song. I pray that every time we worship you in song, whether it's Sunday morning, whether it's Wednesday night, whether it's time at home with our families, I pray that we would do so in spirit and in truth, um, guarding our hearts and, our, and our, our words even to make sure that we're not saying things that are far from our hearts. Um, I confess, with the busyness and craziness of the day, I confess um, the, my tendency to not be as careful as I need to on how I approach you in worship, especially on Wednesday nights at the end of a very long day. And so uh, we humble ourselves before you and ask that you would help us with those things. As well, Lord, we pray um, <clears throat> for our study tonight as we talk about guidance. Um, think it's something we're probably all interested in, in having, um, but considering it as a corporate discipline is frankly just a little bit different to me, and so um, I'm praying that tonight's fruitful. Uh, Lord, we, we want to be guided by you ultimately, and how it is that you intend to, to play that out in the lives of your children um, is found in your word, and, and I pray that you'd show that to us tonight. I also pray, um, as I have every other week, that we'd be honest in regards to the disciplines, that we would be honest in saying either we're, we're doing well in this and need to continue, or maybe some of these are areas where we're just moving very poorly, and we need to repent and move in holiness. Uh, we love you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so last week, um, given our weird schedule, we had to cover two disciplines last week. What were the two disciplines, the corporate disciplines that we studied last week? Confession and worship, yep. And so what God-given role do we fulfill with one another in confession? Say that again? Forgiveness, particularly what regarding forgiveness? We get to forgive others. Yeah, yeah. Express whether or not someone is in that place of receiving forgiveness or not. Now, that doesn't mean that we're a bunch of arrogant, you know, sitting in our, our high horse Christians saying, I don't know, that didn't sound sincere. I don't think you're forgiven. Um, what, what we're talking about here is, is that um, if someone sits in front of you and says, I confess this as a sin, and I, I'm going to move, and, it'll be, and here's my plan for repentance, you get to look at that person and say, in Jesus, you are forgiven. Like, like, almost like, congratulations. I get to tell you that you are forgiven right now. On the same side, if someone sits in front of you and says, you know, I'm doing this, this, and this. I think the example was meth last week, just so we go real extreme. And, uh, and I have no plans to quit it, um, in the example, not me. And so, um, you know, I'm doing this, and I have no plans to quit. You don't look at that person and say, 
well, you're forgiven, just so you know, because it's not fitting. So we have this responsibility with one another when it comes to confession to grant and withhold forgiveness as is appropriate, and that's part of what it means to be a priesthood of believers, exercising those priestly duties under the lordship of Christ in accordance with the lordship of Christ and, and what God says in the word, not how we feel about <clears throat> the, uh, the situation, but, but how the situation is according to Christ. Um, what does it mean to have holy expectancy in worship, and why would we have it? Perfect. That's a great answer. We, every week we show up, um, there's a pastor for certain, for certain who brings a, a message. And that's not a time of dialogue. That's a time where everyone listens to the fragile, common mouthpiece that God chooses to use that week to speak a message. But there's also a worship team that's prepared. And they have a hymn or a song that's fitting. And they bring that. And there's also a media team that works with our images, and they bring thoughts and ideas, and they work on transitions and lighting to eliminate distractions and encourage whatever truth is being proclaimed. And then there's people who lead the supper, who bring details about the supper that connect to the message that they're going to share with you. Then there's people who pray, and there's details of prayer that have been laid on their hearts that they share. All that makes up a corporate worship gathering. It's not just preaching, um, as some might think, and it's not just worship, as some might think. I grew up in a church where, man... 90% of the oomph was the worship time, the song time, the smoke machines and the laser lights and all the fun stuff, and that was awesome. And then it's like, all right, well, out of breath, all right, now we got to listen to the preacher. And that's backwards too, because there are many things that go into a corporate worship gathering that are hugely important. And, um, and so we should have a holy expectancy. We, should, we don't just show up saying, well... I'm just going through the motions. We show up saying God promises to be present with us when, when we're gathered like this. The Holy Spirit moves when we do these things. And so there's this expectancy in worship. And it's kind of, I was thinking it's kind of similar to the expectancy of the disciplines of putting yourself on the path of discipline grace. It, you go through these, these, these exercises of discipline to say, you know what, if I'm meditating and I'm praying, and I'm forsaking sin and flesh, and I'm moving in holiness, and I'm fasting when it's appropriate, and I'm spending proper time in solitude, and I'm not neglecting to meet with others in corporate worship, and I'm not neglecting to stir one another up. I'm expecting God to do something in that, and that's good because he says we can do that. His design is that, hey, I want you to do those things because I give guidance, I give insight, I give wisdom, I give discernment in all these things. So there's a holy expectancy, sort of an excitement. That keeps us from showing up on a Sunday morning with just no preparation, no expectation, and just kind of doing the same thing every Sunday where we just show up and hear something, and that was cool, and we go. So holy expectancy is an appropriate thing in, in the life of the worshiper and in the life of corporate worship as we all gather. So what is the relationship between worship and reality? Yes. Worship is not an escape. It's not an opiate. Um, it's not this sort of, um, I get to get away from all of real life to have a 
happy moment with Jesus in these songs. What it is is a, a very true part in, in worship and song and the, and the message where worship and reality have everything to do with, with each other. It's not an escape from reality. It's an experience in reality. And I mentioned that Brad Cardwell's comments of he can't wait to get to worship. It's the most real hour or two he has every week. It's just it's an experience in reality. It's not just this, this uh, escape opiate thing. So um, tonight we're going to consider the third corporate discipline of guidance. Why do you think guidance is listed as a discipline? Say that again? Because we want to lead ourselves and not follow? Yeah. Does anyone just sort of naturally fall into doing whatever the heck they want? I, I, I do, yeah. So it's interesting that guidance is listed as a, a discipline. How, how might it be a discipline? What might that look like? Seeking the word? Seeking to be discipled? Submission? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a discipline, and I think that there's going to be some things that unfold tonight that are um, convicting in guidance being listed as a discipline. Um, my next question is, why is guidance listed as a corporate discipline? You need other people to be guided. Does everybody, everybody believe that? Because I think people who have a natural tendency, like myself, to want to do whatever the heck I want to do, generally get to that point by saying, I don't care what other people think. Much less do I feel like I need them for direction in my life. And we have sort of this selfish, um, self-infatuated, arrogant, um, independent American spirit that says, I just don't need anybody else. And God would say, well, if you're a person who likes to be guided by me, you in fact do need other people. So it is a corporate discipline. Turn over to Ephesians 4, and we're going to talk a little bit about how this plays out. Ephesians 4 is not, we're not going to this verse to talk directly about the discipline of guidance, but really to talk about how the discipline of guidance works, how we kind of get into it. And um, I was studying this yesterday, issues regarding the old self and the new self. And I was deeply convicted because when we're talking about these things, it really helps people to understand how they change, like how change actually happens in the life of a Christian. We, we have to work hard not to be um, pessimistic, futile thinkers who look at people and say, oh, most people stink and no one really changes. If we're Christians, we have to believe that change is a reality and that it can happen. And these verses help us to understand how people can change, not just change behavior, but change your heart, how, how the heart of an individual can be moved upon by Christ to, to, in fact, bring about a change that is glorifying to God. And that, that process is, I think, what we're talking about when we say guidance. You're looking for, if you ask for guidance, you're looking for direction. Like, how do we get from here to here? How do I get from, from this place to this place? How do I get from this feeling to this feeling? How do I get from um, this demeanor to this demeanor? How do I get from this sin to this holiness? And so we're looking for guidance on how to move and how to change. In Ephesians 4, look at verse 17. It says this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do 
and the futility of their minds. So he's not saying, hey, you're a Christian now, so there's no threat of you ever walking in the futility of your mind. You are a brilliant individual, and you will no longer do stupid fleshly things. That is not what this is saying. This say, hey, you're a Christian now, so do this and don't do this, is how this is opening up. So I, I testify, you must, must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. It's not appropriate for those who are in Christ. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Ignorance is a great word that we don't use enough. Verse 19 says, they become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So this isn't saying they're just greedy. It's using greed to explain how they practice every kind of impurity. It sounds a lot like that thing before the flood where every thought was only evil, every intention of every thought was only evil continually. That's a pretty desperate, bad place. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Does that sound familiar? And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I think many, many times we get wrapped up in the putting off. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to say that anymore. I'm not going to watch that anymore. I'm not going to have the anger anymore. I'm not going to um, lust anymore. I'm, I'm not going to walk in pride anymore. And we get really wrapped up in all of the putting off. Don't do this. Don't do this. And putting off is good. But putting off biblically is incomplete if it is not rounded out by putting on. A lot of times we will perpetually move in the same sins because we have not replaced them with better things, the things we're supposed to put on. Um, in biblical counseling, this is actually just called replacement, meaning there's a person who's struggling with something, there's a behavior that's obvious, you look at the behavior and know that we're not just here to, to work on behavior, but to get to the heart of it, because out of the overflow of the heart, we do stuff. And so if you're trying to change, get from this point to this point, or you're trying to help someone change to get from this point to this point, you're looking at them and saying, they're saying, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to think like this anymore. I don't want to be like this anymore. It's not enough just to put off the old self. There has to be the completion of that equation on putting on the new self, or else you will just perpetually fall back into lust and pride and anger and doubt and anxiety and fear and every other thing you can imagine. But you're supposed to put on the new self. And it, go, it continues with some examples. It says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. So it immediately follows it up with an example of saying, the way that you change, the way that you have guidance to get from one point in life to another point in life, is you put off the old self. For instance, quit lying. Stop it. But it doesn't stop there. It says, Quit lying. Put off the old self of the liar. But put on the new self. Speak the truth with your neighbor. So the opposite of lying is, isn't just not lying. 
The opposite of lying is speaking truth. So you're replacing this old self thing with a new self movement. You're putting off this, you're putting on this. It goes, it continues. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So it says, it's, it doesn't just say, stop being angry. It says you can be angry, but, but don't sin in it. And there's a way you do that. And there's verses that help with that. It goes on. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the putting off is quit being a thief, quit stealing, and in Christ, get a job. In Christ, put your two hands to work so that you can give something to people. Quit taking from people. Put off the old self, which takes and steals and is, and is selfish, and put on the new self, which gets a job, does it for the glory of God, and then gives to people because you have the resources to do it. It goes on. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. So quit corrupting. It's not just corrupt talk. It's corrupting talk. Don't let any of that talk come out of your mouth because it corrupts other people. But rather... Let the things that come out of your mouth be only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So it's put off the old self of corrupting talk where you gather around the coffee pot or the water cooler or whatever and just badmouth people and rail on whatever situation's going on and give your arrogant opinion about anything from you, the news or whatever else. Rather than all that, look for words that fit the occasion that build people up. Like know that you're in an occasion and God's designed it so that you'll have words that fit the occasion to build someone up in it. And that's what you're supposed to speak. So we have this, there's just one example after the other. Of It's not enough just to put off the old self. You have to round it out by putting on the new self. So putting off the old self and putting on the new self, what I want us to see in these in regards to the corporate discipline of guidance is that we can reactively put on and we can proactively put on. What are some ways we might reactively put on the new self. Reactively putting on the new self. How might that happen? What is a reaction? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You can react. Yep. 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 It can be a quick reaction, just stop it, okay? But on putting on, how can we put on the new self in a reactive manner? And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying it happens a lot. So I think we should have a lot of examples. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like a blocker on the internet. That's a good idea. Or what? Or on your mouth? <laughs> I'm going to need some parental guidance to shut this. Yeah. Um, prayer reminders on your phone. I'm prayerless in things, and, and okay, I'm going to do this. That, really, that, that's very proactive, actually. Um, the, <laughs> the, the reactive things that I'm thinking about are like the immediate replacement of something bad with something good, meaning, you know what? I'm in a terrible habit, habit of wasting every evening. So, you know, I'm going to, right now I'm just going to start reading the Bible. And starting at six, I'm just going to have my Bible study so that I don't waste my evening. Or let's just say, theoretically, like someone has a problem 
with the addiction of dipping. Let's just throw that out there. Not that Hunt County would ever have people <laughs> with that. It'd be, it, the reactionary thing would be like, man, oh, I'm trying to quit dipping. It just, it owns me. It's an addiction. Um, it's the flesh, and, and I'm angry when I don't have it. I'm sad when I don't have it. I'm anxious when I, when I don't have it. I'm happy when I do have it. Um, I had that addiction for a long time. That's why these are so fresh and familiar. Um, I, I just went to a, a, a place in my mind. Um, but it'd be like saying, you know what, instead of, I'm going to chew gum. Just sort of this reactive. You know what, I'm trying to not do that, so I'm going to do this. And it's quick. So there's reactive ways that we can put on the new self. However, the proactive ways of putting on the new self, as we discuss the disciplines, we're dealing with the proactive manner of putting on the new self. That's what I'm getting at here. All those examples, don't do this, do this. Put off this, put on this. As we talk about the disciplines, we talk about the internal disciplines, the external disciplines, inward and outward disciplines, and these corporate disciplines. We're talking about this proactive manner, like I'm putting myself on a path to proactively make a plan ahead of time to put on the new self, to put on who I really am in Christ. And the reason I'm sharing that is like a really long intro slash descriptor for this discipline is because that's what we're doing in guidance. We're saying, I want to be guided by God. Well, guidance is a thing where it's like, okay, I'm at a crossroads. Which do I take? That's reactive. Oh, I've got a big decision to make. What do I do? That's reactive. God's guidance isn't designed to be reactive, but in the discipline of guidance, he's saying, there are things you can do in life ahead of time to make sure you are being guided. We don't just go from, I'm outside of God's will, how do I get in it? Or, I'm in a crisis, how do I, how do I make the right decision? We don't just go from one extreme to the other. Generally, the Christian is supposed to be moving forward in step with the Spirit, guided by God as a regular way of life. And there's things that we are supposed to do to see to it that that happens, to put ourselves in the path of discipline and grace regarding guidance. So this understanding is very important when it comes to the discipline of guidance, because oftentimes we think of guidance only as something that we seek in this reactive manner, like I've got a decision to make, or God, what am I supposed to do with my life? Or God, what's my calling? Or you name it. Um, and there's actually a very proactive movement that God designs of putting on the new self. So how does God usually guide his people? Does he guide us as individuals or corporately as a people? And the answer is yes. Okay, the answer is yes. Turn to Matthew 18. God does both, so there's no need to discount either of them. There's no need to lower any bars. However, in guiding us individually and in guiding us corporately, there is a relationship between the, the individual guidance and the corporate guidance that God wants us to understand as we're walking in it. So Matthew 18, verse 19, says... Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. A lot of us know this is the church discipline verse. Church discipline, when it gets to this point, um, church discipline is something that happens all the time. We're all sinners. We struggle with sin every day. We've got people around us that say, hey, uh, you didn't handle that well. You, you were sinful in that. 
And we say, you know what? That's right. I'm going to repent. And we move in that all the time. We love one another. We do that with our spouses. We do that with our friends. We speak into one another's lives. Sometimes people become hard-hearted in their sin, and they say, you know what? I don't want to hear about it. And then you take someone with you to address the sin. And sometimes they'll say, you know what? I don't want to hear from either of you. And then you tell it to the church. And if they don't listen to the entire church, you, in fact, put them out of fellowship. Now, we've gone through this a few times here at Crosspoint. We've gotten to that point where it becomes, in any conflict, you want to keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible, but sometimes it gets out of it uh, uh, bigger than, than that little circle, and it goes to the whole church, and you go through this process of getting to where someone is put out of fellowship, and that's not the last step. Hopefully, the last step is reconciliation, where you are having a fish dinner and celebrating what God has done because the only reason you would put someone out of fellowship is that they're acting like a non-believer, so you're going to treat them like a non-believer, and hopefully by God's design, they'll feel the sting of isolation and want to repent and come back to community because God designed them for community. So big time for a church to need to seek guidance from God, right? You don't make those decisions flippantly and arrogantly. You don't make them quick and on the fly. You want to seek God's guidance in that. You want God to be guiding that situation. And in Matthew 18, it says, again, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. What we're seeing here, well, you tell me, what does God reveal about guidance in those verses? Yeah, gather together to seek it. Mm -hmm. Process, yeah. 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 That's, yep. There's sort of an equation that we see here that I want us to see, and, and the equation is this. You got God's will and their unity equals authority. He's saying you guys are making a decision, an authoritative decision on how we need to move as a church. And he's saying that he has a will, and when we work to preserve our unity and gather together to work together on these, his will and us doing that result in authority, which gives guidance. It's kind of an equation that you can think of. So when you see the end of this process, you don't come to the end of it and say, well, I'd, have to, I'd hate to have to be the guy to make that decision. God never designed it that any guy or girl makes that decision alone. It's designed so that it happens within a plurality of people. In an abundance of counselors, an abundance of wisdom, there's blessing. The Proverbs talk about it over and over again. He who isolates himself is a fool. He who, um, some only like expressing their own opinion, they're fools. But those who walk in this kind of movement have guidance because it's good wisdom from God that is an authority that comes from God's will and the unity of the people being exercised in hard decisions. So, can y'all think of anyone in the Bible that God directed as an individual? We spend a lot of time in John, a lot of time in John, a lot of time in Hebrews. I think we have a pretty good idea that God guides groups of people. What about individually? Any individuals in, in Scripture? Patriarchs, absolutely. Jonah, Moses, Hosea, all the judges. 
So the prophets, David. So there's no need to lower the bar on individual guidance. God guides individuals all of the time. And it's in solitude that you'll get that guidance. Not to sound like a a broken record, but it's in solitude that God guides individuals when they pray and seek his face and then they come back. So my, my question is, given what we know about the discipline of solitude, how might individual guidance relate to corporate guidance? Yeah? So if you bring your wisdom to the group, and you bring your wisdom to the group, and you bring your wisdom to the group, do you see what happens to the group there? There's a collective wisdom that's better than the sum of its parts. That's why God designs that churches are not ruled by dictators, but by elders, fragile common dudes who try to bring wisdom and wisdom and wisdom, and then there's the wisdom that exists at the end of that that's bigger than, greater than the sum of its parts. If it's one guy, it's less wise. Mm-hmm. I haven't gotten there yet. I haven't gotten there yet. We'll get there. Don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12. No, no, we'll turn there now. We'll skip the next part. 1 Corinthians 12. Speaking of giftings, look at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. I mean, the emphasis of that verse, in case you missed it, is many make up one. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. We talked about that on Sunday. Jews or Greeks or slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Jews, Greeks, and slaves are very different people, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And free, they're different too. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would, make, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Have you ever said that? I mean, I don't answer out loud, it would be awkward. But have you ever been in that place where you're just like, I just, I wish I was more like so-and-so, and I'm just not, I'm not an eyeball like that guy. I'm just a pinky finger, and I just, I hate being a pinky. Do you ever get in that spot? This verse is speaking to those who are in that spot, saying um, uh, that would not make it any less a part of the body, even if the, the, the um, hand um, said something so ridiculous. And if the ear, in case, in case that example didn't go good well for you, and if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make the ear any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. I figured it'd be kind of arrogant like that. I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker and indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. 
But that's talking about exactly what you think he's talking about. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. What he's saying is, the reason you're different is so there's no division. Isn't that interesting? The reason you're different is so that there's no division. Think about why we're divided so many times. Differences. Romans 14 talks about how we are not good at having different beliefs within the same faith. I'm sorry. Romans 14 talks about how good it is to have different beliefs in the same faith. I think we stink at it, and we need to read Romans 14 more and study it. This is saying um, uh, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually, members of it. And God is appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. And are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. What does this reveal about guidance? You seek it, you'll be blessed. Ooh, in order to be properly guided, we need to be dependent upon one another. Is that convicting to anybody? In order to be properly guided, we need to be dependent upon one, of, one another. Foster says, no one person possesses everything. If you ever run into a person who, who thinks they do, be cautious. Be careful. No one person possesses everything. Even the most mature need the help of others. The most insignificant have something to contribute that's important and even vital No one could hear the whole counsel of God in isolation. Individual guidance must yield to corporate guidance. God does guide the individual richly and profoundly, but he also guides groups of people and can instruct the individual through the group experience. So it's not just one or the other, but they work together to where guidance is increased on every front for every person when we're all moving in the way we're supposed to. So given that quote I just read, given 1 Corinthians, what must someone have to exercise the discipline of guidance? What, what, what must you have to exercise the discipline of guidance? Church and what did you say? Holy Spirit, you're both right. I wrote a local church, particularly a group of believers who are exercising their gifts of the Spirit. That's how we get guidance. Without being a part of a group of believers who are exercising their gifts according to the Spirit, you won't have the discipline of guidance in its full effect. So practically, how does guidance develop for groups and for individuals? Well, first, Foster states in his book, I thought this was really great, really great, spiritual direction is first born out of natural, spontaneous human relationships. So many times we get caught up in this, Lord, what is my calling? What should I do? What is this massive thing with which I will change planet Earth and feel awesome about what I'm doing? And the reality is, 
we get guidance through spending spontaneous time with normal people just like ourselves. If you think you're above normal, repent, bring it down a notch, and rejoin the community. Spiritual direction is first born out of natural, spontaneous human relationships. If you're having a day where you're just having this existential inward conversation about who am I and what do I do, you go to lunch with someone. Keep your appointment that afternoon. See what God does. Because so much of the guidance that we receive is born out of the community we're a part of. When God is gifting people with particular gifts of the Spirit to be used, which builds up everybody and guides everybody. So we don't have to retreat away from everybody to get the guidance that we need. In fact, most of the time, not all of the time, most of the time it, it happens just in natural movement. What should I do this week? Go, go meet with people and talk to them and let the conversation show what you need to do this week. Sit with your kid. God, what can I do to make my kids know that you're sovereign and make my kids, you know, all these, well, um, just spend time in a Bible study and see what develops and, and talk and allow that normal meeting to, to come into what God wants it to be. He goes on to say, the ordinary kinds of caring and sharing that belong to the Christian community are the starting point for spiritual direction. Out of them will flow kingdom authority through mutual subordination and servanthood. I mean, how do you describe the kingdom? We could say, according to all this, the direction of the kingdom consists in the places and moments where we're led to serve others through our natural relationships, sharing the gospel and modeling the gospel in people that God has brought into our lives. That's kingdom work. When you said it at Chick-fil-A, maybe not Chick-fil-A, it's, I don't know, Chick-fil-A's fine. Um, I had it for dinner. I'm just, it's a very Christian place. Let's just say it, okay? And so all the homeschoolers are up in Chick-fil-A. And so, um, so, but anywhere where you're meeting and, and you're living life together and you're seeking out, how can I help this person? How can I speak truth? How can I bring good news of gospel? That's kingdom movement. That's kingdom work. And it, we, we don't ever need to do anything to minimize it. The direction of the kingdom consists in the places and moments where we're led to serve others through our natural relationships, sharing the gospel and modeling the gospel. Before you make decisions, what do you usually collect? What'd you say? Information. Yeah, I, th- I thought you said permission. I was like, well, that's interesting. Jason, maybe we should talk. That, quit ruling with such an iron fist. Yeah, yeah. Permission. Um, <laughs> Information, the facts, right? Generally, when you make a decision, you're looking for guidance, you collect the facts, right? Is that pretty standard MO for people? Okay. Um, look at Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. So, the point in looking at Acts 15 as we go through it facts are good, spirit is better. So I want you to remember, facts are good, spirit is better. Sometimes the spirit moves in accordance with the facts. Sometimes the spirit will call you to do things that make no stinking sense when you factor in all the facts. So facts are good, spirit is better. Look at, look at 15. This is the title there is the Jerusalem Council. 
And it starts off saying, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So what happens is there are people coming down saying, um, Christ alone, salvation by faith, that's not enough. You still need to be circumcised because the Old Testament Levitical law that God gave to Moses says you have to be circumcised and you might think you're saved just because you've professed Christ and been baptized like he said, but really you still need to be circumcised. And it created confusion. And when you have confusion, you need guidance. How do we work people through this? It would be like someone coming in and saying um, something that's out of whack with what we've heard as a community and out of whack with maybe what we know. And we would have to say, okay, how do we guide our people through this? We need guidance in this. How do we approach it? What do we do? And so there's men, it says, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with those men, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem with the apostles and elders about this question. You see them fielding the question, saying, we're going to have to work through this. This is going to take time, and we need to make sure it's clear because it's dividing people. It's making people think you have to do something Jesus plus something. And so they go through this, and it says in verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So even now, they're going to this place and it's saying, okay, here the, here's the circumcision party again, saying you got to do, it's Jesus plus. It says in verse 6, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. When we see things, it's important that we take the necessary time to consider the matter. Proverbs 18 says, I think it's eighteen nineteen, says, um, a man who gives a, an answer without knowing the facts, knowing the details, knowing what's going on is, is just a fool. If you want to give the answer before you know what's going on, if you just want to spout off what you think before listening, being quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, you're just a fool. And so, here, they're saying the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. It needs considering. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So he's saying, hey, it happened different for the Gentiles and for the Israelites. And so... Um, we need to take into account how God moved and he's reasoning with them and he's working through it and they're working to collectively toward guidance before anyone goes up and speaks. And it's pretty cool because as this happened, look at what happens in verse 12. It says, and all the, effim- all the, <laughs> all the assembly, all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul. That's what happens when you're moving in good wisdom and guidance. Here, the whole assembly becomes quiet as they listen because there's guidance being provided and there's direction being gained. So they fell silent, and then Paul and Barnabas, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And then you see verse 19, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things that polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So the wisdom that they came to, the guidance that they had from God was, was um, not just, hey, tell them they don't have to be circumcised. 
the guidance that they gained through this taking time to consider what was going on collectively was let's remind them, it feels good to say abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what's been strangled and from blood. And look at verse 22, it says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders. It, it seemed good. Our decisions aren't always this, this concrete, absolutely we're for sure. It's, you know what, we prayed about it, we all talked about it, we worked through it, we tried to listen to the Spirit, and you know what, it seemed good. This is what seems right. We are not perfect. We are fallible creatures. We are not infinite in our thinking. We are finite. And I love that it seemed good here because it just shows this human movement in, in, in submitting to God. So it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas, and you go through who's sent and what happens. And then look at verse, what is it? Uh, 28, 26, 27, yeah, 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And they explain what they're supposed to do. So their insight comes from spending some time together, submitting to God, and then the Holy Spirit comes in and tells them what to do. So collecting the facts, what do people know, what's going on, it seems good, there are people who would use the facts differently. And here what we see is the Spirit interceding and helping them to make a decision that's as appropriate as could be given the situation where they needed guidance. So um, just a question, just kind of a thought-provoking question. What are, what's the difference between making decisions by majority rule or by unity of the Spirit? What do you think is the difference between those two things? Night and day? Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I've been convicted by this because I love the idea that, you know what? Give your thought, explain it clearly. If you don't want to take the time to do that, shut up. We'll make a decision, move forward. That's what we do. Not everyone's going to agree. Take a vote. It's fine. We're America. That's what we do. Long live the queen. Whatever. And so this, this whole thing, like the difference between a majority rule or le- leading by unity of the spirit, I want you, you guys to know that for the life of this church, the, the elders have tried to lead by the spirit. We, we haven't voted on anything and then move forward with an uneven vote. I'm not saying it's evil to do that. I'm not saying that there's time for maybe that's not needed. But what I am saying is that the better approach to all decision-making is preserving the unity of the Spirit. What's, what's the difference between preserving the unity of the Spirit and a majority rule? You could have discord. What else might happen? Yeah. The unity of the Spirit brings peace among all, whereas majority rule brings peace to the majority, right? Facts are one aspect of the decision-making process and in themselves are not conclusive. The Spirit can lead contrary to or in accord with the available facts. 
I think it slows it down as well. It makes it more, uh, far less efficient when you're seeking the Spirit's guidance on, on direction. Because I could say, hey guys, so should we plant a church in this place or that place? Well, I say this place, well, I say that place, I say this place, I say this place, I say this place, I say that place. All right, well, we're going to go with this place. And boom, it's done. Next. And you move on, but you haven't really submitted to the Spirit. I read a story this week about um, uh, some men who were discussing the effects of, uh, it was obviously years ago, on um, Christians and, and slavery and movement and laws and, and plans and what they're going to do in this particular community. And it was, it was interesting because it showed this time where they gathered and they sought the Spirit's help to give men direction because there were a bunch of Christians saying, hey, slavery, that, I think it's time this is in the past. And there were some who were saying, no, I don't, I'm not sure that I'm there yet. And they worked through it and they worked through it. And as they came to the end of the process, there were still some who... And don't look down your nose at these people because we're real easily these people, if we're honest. But they weren't as convinced as the group that, that, of the view of slavery that should be taken. But they stood up and they said, men, pray for us that the Spirit would give us the same direction that you have. And one of the observers just said, and this is back when slavery was totally normal. It was a, it was a common thing. And one of the observers in that place said, never before have I seen Christians gather to submit to the Spirit in such a manner that they would slowly work through things, be patient with one another, rather than everyone yelling at the one who hadn't gotten there yet, the one who hadn't gotten there yet saying, brothers, pray for us that the Spirit would would inform us the way they've informed you because we don't have peace about this decision yet. And they took their time and finally, collectively, all had peace from the Spirit and the the result was beautiful, clear guidance. It took longer. Um, it wasn't tidy, but it was so spirit-led and so good that they had guidance as a group, and it was beautiful. So in conclusion of tonight's study, I want to make sure four things are clear. The first is that the corporate discipline of guidance is part of proactively putting on the new self. The corporate discipline of guidance is part of proactively putting on the new self. The second is guidance is received within communities who are exercising their spiritual gifts. Number three, true guidance comes through every member of the body via different gifts. And four, agreement in the spirit trumps majority rule. I think that's what we get from the word tonight regarding guidance. Let me pray, and I'll hang around. If y'all want to write those things down, you can come up and see them, or if y'all have any questions for discussion or anything, I'll, I'll hang around for a few minutes. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, I'm continually humbled by it and pray that we would take into account the things we've heard and really work through them. We love you, Lord, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.